This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. Also, a very happy new year, 2020, big number, and hopefully it will be a great year for everyone. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to do a show on eco-extremism and accelerationism, so a combination of the two because they have connections. So to discuss this really interesting and very important topic, we have Brian Hughes on the show today. So first of all, Brian, thank you for coming on. You're a fellow friend and researcher at American University, so I'm so happy to have you on the Loopcast. Uh, thanks so much, Chelsea. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. I love the show. Well, we love having you on. And for our listeners, Brian is pursuing a PhD at American University. He also teaches at the university and is a researcher in the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at AU. So he is very well entrenched in the subject and has fantastic research. So why don't we start off by you giving us an idea of the roots of eco-extremism and where it comes from? Sure. Uh, well, the, the short answer to that is eco-extremism today comes from our context of ecological crisis. Uh, we are, uh, it, so it seems, hurtling uh, ever faster uh, towards some truly um, troubling reckoning uh, with uh, humankind's impact on uh, the the globe and uh, the the way that affects the viability of uh, human life on this planet um, and the uh, the stresses of that crisis and uh, the political establishment's seeming inability to reckon with uh, this crisis uh, to deal with it and to um, uh, sort of right the ship of state and uh, put us back on a track uh, for a sustainable future is really what's driving uh, ecological extremism, uh, both on the left, the right, and then in this sort of chaotic, jumbled, uh, neither nor um, uh, political milieu uh, that's not, you can't quite call it in the middle, it's really both and neither at the same time. Um, so, so that's what's driving ecological uh, extremism uh, today, uh, but uh, eco-extremism has a history uh, and it has a pedigree and in some ways, that history and that pedigree can inform our understanding uh, of today's eco-extremism. Uh, but in other ways, it kind of confuses it. Uh, you know, uh, when I was younger, <laughs> in the uh, 90s and 2000s, and, and even back into the 80s, um, eco-radicalism was really the province of the far left. Um, groups like Greenpeace... Uh, Earth First, the ALF, uh, Animal Liberation Front, the ELF, the Earth Liberation Front. Uh, these were all far-left groups that sort of hewed to a kind of, you know, um, anarcho-communist uh, political ideology. Uh, prior to that, um, environmental issues really had, in, in the United States at least, a, a pretty um, broad 
bipartisan um, base of support. Uh, this was until the 1980s uh, when uh, the Republican Party um, forged much closer alliances with resource-based uh, corporations and business. Um, and then prior to that, of course, you have uh, World War II and uh, the relationship of um, uh, Nazi Germany uh, to ecology, which it sort of folded into this um, uh, mystical uh, racialist nationalist project. Uh, so, so there's this there's this history and this back and forth where um, throughout the 20th and early 20th cent- 21st centuries, uh, by turns the left and the right really tried to lay claim uh, to eco-radicalism. Uh, but what we're seeing now uh, with this, this crisis that I mentioned at the outset is that uh, these distinctions of left and right, uh, these, um, these boundaries uh, are becoming increasingly contested. Uh, the people who self-identify as eco-extremists or the people who we might identify as eco-extremists are much more challenging to pigeonhole uh, into either a far left or far right category. I find this really interesting because, as you just said, a lot of people associate ecoterrorism with one extreme view or another extreme ideology on the political spectrum. Do you find that there's any unifying connection of eco extremism between the left or the right? or the left and the right, should I say, or is it really very fluid at this point? Uh, I would say at this point it's really quite fluid. I mean, I think I think in a sense what we saw throughout the 20th century was um, environmentalism as a more abstract concern, and in some ways it was a proxy uh, for other concerns. You know, it was a, a proxy for this um, imagined uh, racialism, or it was a proxy for uh, anti-capitalist um, radical politics uh, in, in capitalist countries in the West. And today, uh, it's not abstract. It's extremely concrete. You know, Australia is burning to the ground, and uh, Indonesia is drowning. Um, uh, India experiences record droughts and uh, heat waves that um, are, are killing, uh, you know, large swaths of its population. Uh, so I think that immediacy um, and that end of abstraction and proxy politics is really uh, what's making it transcend and in some ways complicate and confuse uh, the left-right distinction. A lot of the time when we hear about environmental changes and global warming and so forth, there's this huge debate about climate change denialism. How does eco-extremism change or even alter this idea of climate change denialism? Well, climate change denialism wasn't an organic phenomenon. Uh, It was um, a policy and a strategy of disinformation and coercion on the part of resource-based industries and uh, the political groups who made common cause with them. So there's the sense that um, uh, climate denialism is what put us in this, you know, present-day crisis, and um, the the relationship between the conservative movement and those resource-based industries throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s are why eco-radicalism uh, during that period was the province of the far left. Um, but nowadays, there really aren't very many climate denialists left. There's this kind of, um, you know, inertia. 
that you still see uh, among conservatives um, and and uh, some of the the front facing communications of resource backed industry, uh, you know, that still pays a little bit of lip service to this denialism. But we know, you know, we know full well that uh, these resource based industries have have been aware of the reality of climate change since the 1970s. And um, beyond setting the stage for what's happening now, uh, climate denialism is really, it's surprising, actually, how quickly it's just being dropped. Um, the the um, various uh, conservative, right-wing, and far-right political movements uh, really pivoted incredibly quickly uh, from climate denialism to a recognition uh, of uh, climate crisis and they really did so without any concern <laughs> for, for getting from point A to point B with some kind of ideological justification or pseudoscientific rationale. Really, we're just seeing, you know, one day people are climate denialists or skeptics, and then the, ne- the next day they're, they're eco-fascists, uh, essentially. Uh, you know, it was, it was really striking to watch this on the American far right. You know, my, my own research tends to focus in the United States and then the Anglosphere. Um, but it really did just happen more or less overnight between, you know, 2000, between 2013 and 2015. Um, these voices on uh, the extreme right uh, just pivoted, and they, they didn't really bother to explain themselves. On that comment, what do you think helped make this pivot happen during that time period you just mentioned? Um, well, I think that uh, the availability of media uh, that really puts in, in the most stark visual terms uh, our, our present crisis uh, played a large role. And when every summer you can watch uh, glaciers just melting down to nothing, um, when you can watch the Southern California uh, wildfires every year and see these, you know, apocalyptic scenes of people driving down the highway while, you know, to their left and in front of them, a mountain is just completely engulfed in flames, you know, like something out of Dante. Uh, You know, you can see what's happening in Australia. Uh, The sheer volume of uh, very compelling uh, media um, that's uh, conveying the reality uh, of our environmental crisis, I think... I, I think it. I think it woke people up, uh, even on the far right. Also, just to make a, a little input in here, as you mentioned, these horrible fires that are taking place in Australia right now. I know we have a number of Australian listeners, so just we wish you the best. We really hope that you and your family and your your properties are okay and everyone's safe because the, the fires are completely devastating. As you were just saying, Brian, it is very Dante's Inferno when you see these newsreels of what is taking place. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, certainly, um, you know, to my own friends in Australia, yeah, stay safe. Um, it, it's, it's horrifying. Yes. You mentioned the far-right connection with eco-extremism, and I'd love to pivot the show on how that is manifesting. What are we seeing with eco-extremism being inputted into far-right rhetoric and so forth? 
Right. Um, well, when we're looking at the far right and its relationship to um, eco-extremism, uh, it, it's important to, to look at it at two different levels. Uh, so on the one, on the level of sort of the political underworld, right, the, the extremist militia groups, um, you see increasing um, rhetoric and uh, preparation uh, for social collapse brought about by ecological crisis. Um, there are some very lurid uh, militia type groups uh, that are that, that make this a, a central pillar um, of their strategic um, and ideological positioning. Uh, this is also what we read in the manifesto of the Christchurch shooter, who who described himself uh, as an eco-fascist, and uh, in uh, the manifesto of the El Paso shooter, uh, who took a great deal of inspiration from Christchurch. Um, you have a um, substrate of violent extremists, um, a lot of lone offender terrorists, um, as well as these um, very kind of colorful, lurid militia-type groups uh, that um, are motivated uh, by this sense of crisis, and to the extent that they're broadcasting their intent and um, the, the... you know, the, the propaganda that they're trying to inject into their violent deed, right? We call terrorism the propaganda of the deed, and uh, the propaganda of their deed has um, uh, information in it uh, that, that pertains to, to concern over this, this ecological crisis. So that's the, that's the uh, extremist uh, underbelly. Uh, of eco-extremism. Um, but we also need to look at the way that um, far-right governments uh, are beginning to engage with this. Um, you know, colloquially, colloquially, excuse me, it's sometimes referred to as eco-fascism or uh, eco-authoritarianism or fortress nationalism. But there's a, a suite of um, ideological positions and uh, increasingly uh, policies that are intended to deal with ecological crisis um, from a, a far right position. So closing up, closing up of borders, right, is is a big one. Uh, as the as the stresses uh, of these shocks uh, become worse and worse, there are going to be increasing uh, refugee crises, and um, some of these far right populist governments uh, we're seeing in the U.S. and uh, Europe and um, uh, India, for example are uh, preparing their, um, their immigration policies uh, in order to, to deal with it in such a way that doesn't uh, increase uh, immigra- flows of immigration. Um, in some ways, this is a really emerging uh, situation that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, there was a very good article uh, published in, I believe, The Atlantic uh, only this past week uh, that, that deals with this uh, governmental um, far-right uh, eco-radicalism. And uh, I'd also like to just point uh, listeners in the direction of um, a blog post on the Verso Books uh, blog called, uh, I believe it was called Eco-Fascisms and Eco-Socialism, uh, which was a very good overview um, of this situation and, and some of the concerns uh, that, that relate to it. Thank you. That's always good for extra reading for individuals who really want to dive into the subject, especially if they're new to it. So looking at this far right element of the eco extremism, 
And you mentioned a little bit about motivations and, and ideologies, and I was wondering if we could talk about that and especially the concept of accelerationism and what that means. So give us, um, I guess, the teaser of accelerationism that, for those that might not know of it and how it connects to eco-extremism. Right. Uh, well, accelerationism means a lot of different things uh, to a lot of different people. Um, but I would say that the, uh, the most basic, generic way of defining it that covers the most different schools of accelerationist thought is just simply to say that um, we need to hurry up <laughs> and get to the end of whatever this untenable situation we're currently living through is so that we can take stock of what is actually left over uh, after this period of, of crisis and inaction concludes, and then try to rebuild um, our world uh, in, in, in some way. Uh, you know, left accelerationists want to rebuild it according to uh, a sort of a leftist uh, ideological project. Far right accelerationists have uh, their own ideological projects that they're hoping to enact. And then there's a variety of um, very esoteric almost science fiction uh, accelerationist positions uh, that have their own views as to uh, our current crisis and what might come after it. Um, it's important. Well, uh, I'll leave that can be the teaser and, and I'm sure we'll circle back to it. It's a very complicated uh, topic. And uh, every time you discuss it, you end up leaving uh, a few people mad. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best as we keep going here. That's okay. I have seen the conversations on Twitter, so I completely understand. Um, what could we say are some of the goals attached with eco-extremism and even possibly accelerationism in this, in this sphere with the eco-extremism of groups or movements that, that um, hold these ideologies and leanings? Right. Uh, I, I don't want to uh, name any of the groups specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but the far-right militia-type groups uh, that subscribe to um, uh, sort of a vision of ecological collapse and what we might call an accelerationist philosophy, uh, what they are hoping for is that through increasing social discord, um, infrastructural instability, and these massive shocks, right, like hurricanes and fires and then economic crises and things like that, uh, our society, our system of government will collapse. And then out of that chaos, they can emerge and impose their own sense of um, order and hierarchy, which is violent and uh, racist um, and primitivist. Do you ever see in your research groups or leaderless movements, let's say the far right in general, since we're not naming any names, do you ever see them capitalize off of natural disasters? Like we were talking about, we have the huge fires that we've had in California and, and currently in Australia, hurricanes, etc. Does that become an event for some of these groups or movements to capitalize off of? Uh, surprisingly, I haven't seen uh, a lot of um, di direct um, responses to these 
these very visible singular uh, shocks like the wildfires or a hurricane uh, or, or something like that. Um, it, it's interesting the the groups that tend to respond the most to to those uh, acute environmental moments tend to be the ones that uh, straddle the line uh, between that that political underworld of the militia type groups and then the uh, the more overt political eco fascist movements. So you see groups that are more traditional militia-type groups or um, far-right drinking clubs uh, who will patrol against looters uh, after hurricanes, for example. And there's a, there's a heavily racialized dimension to what it is they're doing. Uh, effectively, what they're doing is they're trying to police uh, white areas from uh, non-white um, uh, disaster survivors uh, from coming through there. Uh, so, so those are actually the groups who tend to respond most directly to these environmental shocks. Uh, what we see with the more lurid militia groups, the real uh, eco-extremist primitivists, uh, is, is a more sustained um, opposition to modernity or post-modernity uh, that really doesn't relent very much uh, regardless of, of what's happening in the news. It's also interesting and also very complicated when you get into the nitty-gritty of it. I feel like there's just so much that is unsaid in in the field. Um, yeah. You also, you, you sent us this great piece that you wrote, which I'm sure is yet to be published. However, you discuss capitalism and how this fits in with ideas of accelerationism and eco-extremism. I want to talk about that a little bit and how that factors into this discussion. Well, capitalism has its own logics and <clears throat> absent uh, aggressive uh, political intervention into the logics of capital, there's a very relentless uh, expansion and extraction uh, that capital really can't help but undertake. Uh, I won't get into all the, <laughs> all the economics of it, um, but if left uh, unchecked, uh, capitalism kind of can't help but, but strip mine uh, the world around it um, in order to correct uh, the falling rate of profit, which is you know, more or less um, uh, unavoidable uh, in, in any uh, in any scenario. Um, so what we're seeing is this uh, expansion and extraction that's natural uh, to capitalist uh, arrangements of production um, that is uh, itself accelerating, right? It's accelerating as the rate of profit decreases, um, and it's accelerating, too, uh, in response to the increased cyberneticization uh, of the world, right? The, the internet is no longer just a communications platform. It's really the infrastructure uh, on which we do all of our business. Uh, we maintain all of our national security. It's how we run our households. Uh, it's how we do our banking. And uh, one of the key conditions of um, digital platforms, it's what's called recursive feedback loops. And basically what a recursive feedback loop is, is it's a feedback loop that tends to get more extreme over time. So like the classic example of this 
is your Netflix queue, right? So let's say that you uh, only watch highbrow art cinema on uh, Netflix. You know, you watch your Criterion Collection and your Scorsese and your Kurosawa, but you don't watch any trash. Well, one day you watch The Wrestler starring Mickey Rourke uh, because it's a, it's a fine film. Well, what happens is then Netflix recommends uh, a very good, artful pro wrestling documentary the next time you log on. And let's say you click on that link and you watch that documentary. Well, the next time you log on to Netflix, they recommend some much less artful documentaries about pro wrestling. And uh, it doesn't take too much engagement with those suggestions before uh, you're no longer being offered art cinema and soon your your feed is completely uh full of pro wrestling (laughs) and pro wrestling documentaries and historical pro wrestling right so so if we take that that feedback loop that tends to get more extreme over time if you engage with it and we apply it to things like our economy and our politics and our way of communicating politically and even the very logics, the very extractive and expansive logics of capital, what we have is actually a system of political economy that is accelerating. <laughs> it's getting faster, and it's going faster, and it's getting more extreme because it's caught up in these recursive feedback loops because it sits on top of this algorithmic digital infrastructure. I will just say I loved your analogy in describing that. It was fantastic. So thank you very much for that. Oh, my pleasure. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your personal research that you have been doing. And like I said, I know you sent me a document that is going to be published in the near future, and I can't wait to see it published. So I don't want to spoil anything that maybe shouldn't be spoiled. So I will give you the freedom to discuss some of the current projects you've been working on and your analysis and what you've found regarding eco-extremism and this intersection between far-right politics and accelerationism. Yeah, the journal you're talking about um, is, I believe it's called Intervention, and and the Violence Prevention Network um, publishes it. Actually, I just got the proofs today. I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Oh, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it looks it looks good. They they do some very nice uh, visual design. Um, well, what I did was I, I undertook a study of uh, eco extremism on Twitter, and there's a microculture on Twitter that sometimes gets called Pine Tree Twitter, and uh, it's known as being. Um, uh, eco-extremist, um, frequently far-right, but also far-left, and um, frequently uh, a confusing mixture of the two. Uh, there's there's a, another good article uh, I can recommend um, for your listeners uh, by Jake Hanrahan, and I believe it was in Wired UK, and you can access it online, and it's, it's about Pine Tree Twitter. It was sort of the, the inspiration and the genesis uh, for this study. Um, and, and what I did was I collected a sample population of about uh, a thousand um, pine tree Twitter accounts, and you know I, I individually verified uh, based on their um, their content that they were pine tree Twitter accounts, and then I coded them according to uh, a series of criteria uh, that marked 
their ideological um, commitments, and then uh, their statements of identity. Uh, then I looked at each one of those categories and I uh, assigned it either broadly to the left wing or broadly to the right wing. And what I discovered is that Pine Tree Twitter uh, is very difficult to classify uh, either on the far left or the far right. Uh, there was a, a sizable chunk of pretty unambiguously eco-fascist users. Um, but those only made up about a quarter to a third uh, of all of Pine Tree Twitter. Um, so the vast majority of it was much more difficult to classify uh, along traditional uh, far left, uh, far right um, uh, um, spectrum. Uh, and one of the things I also found was uh, that whether on the far left or the far right or in this very confused jumbled mixture of the two, um, Pine Tree Twitter was very closely related uh, to philosophical accelerationism. Um, there were very few accounts that were both uh, in the Pine Tree Twitter uh, microculture and the philosophical accelerationist microculture, uh, but they very frequently followed each other. Uh, so one of the things that I tried to understand was why there was an affinity uh, between these microcultures, uh, but why there was so little overlap. And I think that in some ways a lot of the confusion uh, that, that plagues discussion of accelerationism really hinges on that distinction, that there's an affinity and there's sometimes a conversation that happens across these, these microcultures, uh, but to say that there's an overlap uh, is kind of misleading. So what do you think this this project that you've just talked about and, and have done, what do you think that means for the larger picture of studying this phenomena and also the future of eco-extremism here in the States and worldwide, really? Well, Pine Tree Twitter is already fading away. Uh, really, once Christchurch happened... Uh, it began to break apart. Um, so, and, and you know, uh, people who do um, uh, communication studies or, or even um, uh, certain kinds of uh, social science research understand that <laughs> looking at Twitter is a sampling strategy, right? It, you, you can only make so many, um, uh, you can only extrapolate so much from what you you learn by looking at Twitter. Uh, so, so as far as like what the future of Pine Tree Twitter is and how it relates to eco extremism, I don't know if there's a, a very con a very direct connection or evolution that we can look to, but I think there's an indicator uh, of emerging um, emerging contradictions and emerging ideological positions that don't track easily onto our traditional. Uh, uh, our, our traditional matrix of left, right, authoritarian, liberal, uh, and so forth. Um, the, the, the politics of extremism that are emerging, uh, particularly in relation to the environment, uh, if, if this pine tree Twitter study is any indication, uh, are going to be very novel and uh, confusing uh, if we're trying to apply old ways uh, of categorizing it. Um, I'm sorry, what was, what was the second half of your question? 
I was I was just more looking like as you just kind of mentioned the the broader picture of what this means for maybe the future of eco extremism and how that relates to political discourse that we have here in the states and elsewhere. So yeah, the broader picture basically. Right. Okay. Um, well. I think that in the future, what we're probably going to see, or, or at least the the emerging risk that, that I would hope um, other researchers and practitioners and um, people involved in liberal political projects uh, would would take into account, is there's a, a symbiotic relationship between that substrate of um, eco-extremist violence that we've seen with Christchurch and with El Paso and with some of these militia-type groups. Um, There's a symbiotic relationship between uh, that underbelly and then far-right populist projects. Uh, And what we will see, I think, in the future, uh, if the environmental crisis continues to go unaddressed, is um, both a a top-down and a bottom-up pressure uh, on society uh, in response to these to these um, these threats and these crises, so I think you'll probably see more outbursts of lone offender violence, um, and at the same time, you'll see more uh, restrictive and authoritarian policies being put into place. Um, and all of this helps to foster uh, a um, a sort of fortress or, or siege mentality uh, within the the, the general um, body politic that then becomes more um, sympathetic uh, to authoritarian uh, responses to, to environmental crisis. So again, you kind of have a feedback loop where um, things can, can really go from bad to worse. Now, I think that the thing to watch out for in the midst of all this is this emergence of um, hard-to-categorize political positions, uh, that's the wild card uh, that can make um, that, that can throw all of our predictions and our analyses into total disarray and send us back to the drawing board. You know, uh, so many of the uh, arguments over the environment and uh, so many of the the ways that extremist ideolo- ideology formed uh, in the past really had to do with uh, the the Westphalian nation-state, its, its fate under globalization and post-modernity, uh, this question of globalism, uh, who is going to, to reap the benefits of global modernity and who is going to constitute uh, its exploited um, labor pool. And those questions, uh, in one sense, the stakes are higher than ever <laughs> as a result of eco-crisis. And... Um, on the other hand, they're less salient, or they make they make less sense uh, than ever. So we're going to see potentially um, new actors emerging. Uh, I guess I would say expect surprises and expect novelty. And this is another place where philosophical accelerationism, uh, which you know I should stress, uh, doesn't really relate to these militia type groups, uh, where, where philosophical accelerationism is is correct in, in its analysis of, of our present day. Uh, there's going to be novelty and there's going to be a lot of strangeness, um, things we didn't expect, uh, things that are horrifying or um, shocking 
um, that we're not presently prepared to reckon with uh, that are going to emerge out of these increasingly chaotic and pressurized and um, accelerated conditions. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's a, it's a sandwich with bees in the middle of it, so to speak. You know, you, you've got on top, you've got the, the um, eco-authoritarianism. On the bottom, you have this underbelly of political violence. And in the middle, you have this vast, seething um, uh, chaos out of which new, new forms are, are going to emerge. Um, anyway, that's, that's what I would predict if pressed. Well, I think that is a perfect way actually to end the show because you really encapsulated it all and it will be really interesting to see what the future holds and research on the subject in the future since we all love to have everything so nicely packaged and and groups boxed with this or that. And of course, as you said, it's pretty much a mixed bag and you're not sure exactly what you're going to get and it's going to be a fantastic surprise. (laughs) So it will be interesting to see, as I said, what the future holds for this topic and and the greater topics that expand from this. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there's there's no telling, uh, but it'll probably be bad. (laughs) Well, we like to try to end things on a positive note, but not everything (laughs) is always positive. But hopefully 2020 won't be that bad. <laughs> Hope springs eternal, and, you know, it's, it's, up, it, it's up to us. It's up to us to be, you know, the, it's up to us to, to stand up for liberal governance and civil society and, um, and equity. Uh, so, you know, the positivity is, is, in, is inside of us. These are tough times, but I, I think we're up to the challenge. Exactly. As my mother says, she has a great quote that she, it's her own quote, but she says, lead by being an example of what you want to see in your world or how you want to see people treat each other. So it kind of stems back to the old wisdom of mom. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Your your mom's heuristics are are usually right. (laughs) Yes. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Brian, and we will definitely post some of your works with this show. So I highly informed, um, highly informed works and I, I highly recommend our readers to read them if you're really interested in diving deeper into this subject. So thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Chelsea. Uh, it was great. <laughs>